What's going on, everybody, and welcome in to another edition of B-Shape Daily. Brendan Schaefer here with you in the evening hours of Thursday, August 11th, 2022, as we break down another Cardinals game, and this one's a loss to the Colorado Rockies as St. Louis drops the series out in Denver with a difficult one to swallow from Thursday afternoon. 8-6, to six, the Rockies victorious over the Cardinals. And this is one that got away from the Cardinals with the bullpen. We're going to talk about the pitching performances from this game. Dakota Hudson got the ball for the Cardinals, and we knew coming into it that that could mean things might get a little dicey. But to his credit, Hudson really wasn't the reason the Cardinals lost this game. Five innings, two runs allowed. I want to explain why I was still disappointed in elements of Hudson's outing, despite the fact that the run line in the innings line, not so bad. Five and two is something that you'll take. It's deeper than Hudson went in his last outing and for the most part more effective. But I want to explain still one element that it just it, it grinds my gears and uh, it's continuing to happen for him and for others on the Cardinals pitching staff as well. As we'll talk about the struggles for Jordan Hicks, going into a second inning of work. It's something that Twitter really has caught on to, and I'll give my thoughts on it, whether or not this was something where we looked to Jordan Hicks to to lay some blame or maybe with the Cardinals manager for putting Hicks into situations where he just has not thrived in these scenarios. And so why do the Cardinals continue to try and force the issue on using Jordan Hicks for more than one inning? That's something that Twitter... Harped on tonight, and I want to give my take on that situation and, and kind of how I view that whole deal. The Cardinals' offense, there were positives to take away from this game, and so we'll talk about a few of those, mentioning Nolan Gorman and, obviously, Goldenado. Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado with good days at the plate once again. Check in on their MVP race, because I do believe Nolan Arenado is deserving of at least some consideration within that conversation, but Paul Goldschmidt reminded everybody today, hey, I'm pretty good at this hitting thing as well. So we'll check in on all that and then get into a little bit more of the bullpen conversation too with the discussion pertaining to Henesis Cabrera and the struggles that we've seen from him recently. What's it mean for the Cardinals bullpen at large that the guy who had been their chief dominant lefty or is expected to be is lagging behind a little bit in his recent efforts. And by the way, we'll talk about Something that, and I can't believe this wasn't the first thing that I teased for today's show, the change at leadoff and how that impacted the Cardinals' offense on Thursday. Because, again, six runs, they didn't do badly offensively. That was not the problem today. 12 hits and uh, reached base three times via walk, so 15 base runners. We'll talk about how the discussion we had on last night's B-Shape Daily about Lars Newtbar came to fruition on Thursday and could be a sign of things to come. I liked how it looked, and we'll get into our thoughts on Newt moving into the leadoff spot. So we'll get into all that and more on today's episode of B-Shape Daily. But real quick, before we get into the content of the show, I'd like to remind you that you can subscribe to B-Shape Daily on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, head to Twitter at bshafer 12 click on the Money tab, and you'll be connected to my Cash App or Venmo account. Another way you can support B-Shape Daily, this is rather new. A couple of blog posts up already on the Patreon account, and this is something that is going to be in addition to B-Shape Daily. This remains a free podcast, but if you want to show your support for the show, one way you can do it is to subscribe to my content and become a patron 
on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash bshafer12 and sign up there. And already you'll be able to check out a couple of blog posts. There's going to be podcasts coming as well and uh, content beyond just the baseball stuff. If you're into Mizzou sports, a lot going on over there when the season starts up for football, fantasy football, and a lot of sports gambling stuff is the plan for Patreon. So another way to support all the content that I'm doing here, would appreciate it if you guys would check that out, patreon.com slash bshafer12. But let's get into the content of the show by breaking down this Cardinals loss. Uh, let's start with Dakota Hudson. Five innings, two runs, as I mentioned. That's not really so bad. Why am I coming into the show harping on Hudson when really there were other larger issues for the Cardinals on Thursday afternoon. The reason for it is because I just can't stand anymore to watch, and Hudson was not the only Cardinal pitcher guilty of this today, and we'll get to how Jordan Hicks struggled with it as well. But I just can't stand to watch the free bases being given up with the consistency that we're seeing it from Hudson. It's the wrong kind of consistency to be walking guys, putting guys on, and making your life voluntarily more difficult. And it's not that he's been bad this year solely because of the walks that he's allowed. And his recent numbers prior to today's game, a couple twos, a three-walk game, had one where he only gave up one. It hasn't been overly dramatically terrible. And the numbers are, the rate, especially before today, was a little better than what we'd seen in his 2019 season, which was really the only other full starting season for Hudson in his big league career. He led the league that year in walks, 86 free bases in 174 and two-thirds innings. This season for Hudson, he's up to 110 innings pitched and now 50 walks on the season. So not quite that four and a half per nine after tonight's game, but he's getting closer to that rate Started at 3.9 before today. It's now above four walks per nine innings on the season. That's too high for me. You look at Adam Wainwright, and maybe that's not a fair comparison because as a veteran, he's been so good at limiting the free bases, but he's got 30-some-odd walks in 130-some-odd innings. That's a much better rate than we're seeing from Dakota Hudson, not only this year, but throughout his career. And that's what's so frustrating because you're a guy who your whole entire thing is pitching to contact. You don't strike guys out, and that's you You get knocked for that in the modern game. Everybody's throwing hard. Everybody's looking for whiff rate and trying to strike guys out. And if you can't do that, okay, you have to find other ways to beat guys. Beat them by allowing them or forcing them to hit into soft contact Rely on your defense behind you and be a successful pitcher. That's a good way to go about it if you're Dakota Hudson. The problem is when you combine the fact that he doesn't strike guys out with the fact that he's allowing so many free guys to just get on base without having to work for it. In the second inning today, he had eight straight balls, and I will say that ball four in the second walk there in, in inning number two was he was getting squeezed a little bit on that high strike. But that's, I mean, when you throw seven balls in a row and then you have one on the on the black, the umpire is not necessarily going to be inclined to give it to you. And to me, that's not a sign that we need robot umps. That's a sign that you need to throw better pitches. I'm okay with an umpire. Like, it's you could say right or wrong. I don't really get up in arms when an umpire tends to, on ball four, after seven consecutive balls were thrown on a high strike, 
when the umpire doesn't just give you the pity call and he's been conditioned almost by your pitching to think it's not in the strike zone. I don't really get up in arms and, and, and cry about that for you know on behalf of a pitcher because my view is you should you should be establishing the strike zone better than to allow the ump to make that mistake. There are some games where the umpire is just so bad, there's nothing you can do about it. That was the case in the Wainwright start on Sunday against the Yankees. This is not really the same situation to me that we're talking about with Dakota Hudson there. I just happened to notice that ball four was, you know, one that he probably should have been been granted as a strike to continue that plate appearance. But it doesn't really bother me all that much. What bothers me is the two walks that lead directly to a two-run double. You're gonna you're gonna get doubles hit off of you, especially in Coors Field. It's spacious. There's the thin air. The ball's gonna be hit hard, and sometimes your fielders aren't gonna be able to get to it. That's okay. But you compound the issue of you being a contact-oriented guy when you just allow ducks on the pond so freely. And those were the only two earned runs that Hudson gave up in his start, and so I guess I'm I'm picking nits on this one. But I just can't let it go because if that doesn't happen, Hudson ends up with one of the best starts of his season. And he had two other walks in the game as well and finished the day with four walks in five innings. On the season, 50 walks in 110 innings. And for Hudson, like I mentioned, not much of a strikeout guy. To his credit, he had six strikeouts today. But even with that, it's only 62 strikeouts in 110 innings on the season. That's got to be one of the lower strikeout per nine rates in baseball this year. And then you think about his strikeout-to-walk ratio, it's barely above one. He didn't do a lot to improve it today by striking out six. That's good. Walking four. That's not so good. And if you're a longtime listener of B-Shape Daily, you know that I'm one of Dakota Hudson's biggest supporters. I have sort of fended off some of the talk earlier in the year when people were getting down on him and said that all this guy's got to do is throw his five or six innings, and occasionally he'll get seven when he's getting a little bit of good BABIP luck on balls in play, finding gloves instead of finding holes. And that's all he needs to be. He can be your number four, number five starter and be effective in that. But the way that he quickly will find himself out of this organization in the offseason is by not tidying up the walks. Because I don't think Ali Marmel wants to stand for it. I don't think the front office wants to stand for it. Not if you're if you can't be a guy that comes back the other way and gets a bunch of strikeouts to find ways to get yourself out of jams. Like if you're gonna have to be that pitcher who relies on contact, you can do that, but you can't do it both ways. You can't be a contact guy, but then say well, there's going to be guys always on the bases because I'm going to walk, uh, you know, four or five guys per nine innings. And then I'm going to chalk it up to bad luck because sometimes the balls are going to find holes. No, you can't have it both ways. And I know I'm ripping it a little bit hard today considering he only gave up those two runs. But it, like I'm saying, if that isn't the situation, if he doesn't walk those two guys, even if he gives up a double into the gap, it's no runs. Nobody even scores. And maybe it's a different outcome to the game. Now, granted, as I said already, Dakota Hudson was not the reason the Cardinals lost today. But I am putting him under the microscope a little bit more than I have in previous weeks and months of this season. And even in past years, evaluating Dakota Hudson's performance. Because I feel like there's more in there that that should be bubbling to the surface. And the Cardinals haven't gotten 
the most out of Hudson this year. I would like to see him just tamp down the walks, and it's a, it's a different situation. We look at him completely differently, in my opinion. But Dakota Hudson, not the only guy that we can say that about. Jordan Hicks, let's get into his conversation and uh, talk about what happened, not in the first inning that he threw today, because he came in in relief and was looking pretty good. He throws an inning, and if that would have been the end of it, you're thinking, all right, solid inning for Jordan Hicks. But I think it's because of the modern style of bullpenning that is traversing its way through the game these days that Ollie Marmel, and it's not just him, but other managers around the game as well, look at these guys who throw hard and maybe they're converted starters. Like Jordan Hicks has had been a starter in the minors. They tried to make him be a starter this year at the big league level. And we all know it didn't really work out. He wasn't efficient enough to hold down a spot in the rotation. And I thought it was the right decision when they made the choice to move him back to the bullpen, coming off of the injury as he did. But then he gets into a spot there in the seventh inning after a really good sixth where he can't find the strike zone anymore. He gets the first out in the seventh and then consecutive walks. If you've got multiple times in a baseball game that your team surrenders consecutive walks in an inning, the odds are you're going to come have to pay for that at some point in time, whether it's with you still on the mound or the guy who's trying to bail you out. It puts your team in a bind. And it did that for the Cardinals today when Dakota Hudson did it in the second inning. And it, it happens again with Jordan Hicks there in the seventh because Hennessy's Cabrera comes in and all hell breaks loose. So partially, I'm I'm placing some blame on Hennessy's Cabrera for struggling the way that he did in this game. And you could say that recently there have been a few hiccups. Today was the third one since the beginning of July. And he hasn't been used a whole heck of a lot necessarily in July, only six appearances. And today was his third in the month of August. But just a little bit shaky. And today they were, I mean, he was serving up batting practice is the way it looked. Prior to today, a 4.70 ERA since the beginning of July with a 5.21 FIP. Had had five walks in seven and two-thirds innings. No walks today, and I'm giving those numbers without today included because Baseball Reference doesn't have it updated yet. But today it wasn't a problem of walks. Jordan Hicks had already set the scene for him. All all he had to do, all Hennessy's Cabrera had to do, was uh, throw it in the strike zone and allow the Rockies to tee off on him. And that's exactly what happened. And he had two runs on on the bases before he came into the game, so he was... Not responsible for those, but those were inherited runners that you would sure like to see squashed out and, and not come around to score. They do, and so Jordan Hicks is charged with both of those, and it was just the walks that did it. He didn't even get a chance to bail himself out, but when you walk consecutive guys and you're in your second inning, that shows the manager that you're not in position to to continue necessarily to get out of your own jam. And I saw Cardinals fans will we'll kind of do this in tandem. with, with When it comes to Hicks, I saw Cardinals fans who said Ali Marmel needs to know that Jordan Hicks can't pitch a second inning. He's always looks really good, looks really solid for the one inning. But then if you try to force him and continue him in the game for longer than that, it ends up being a struggle. Personally, I don't think 
the data actually backs this up necessarily. You can look at the games that he's pitched recently for more than an inning, and it just it surprised me today to see everybody so up in arms about this. Because since he moved into the bullpen July, he came back on July 2nd, I'm just going to give you some of his multi-inning performances this season since the beginning of July. So all relatively recent within the, the past six weeks or so. One and two-thirds, two hits, no runs. Two innings, one hit, three strikeouts, no runs. One and two-thirds, one hit, three walks with a strikeout but no runs. So finds a way to get out of that one. One and a third, all zeros. One and two-thirds. Here's the first one that was really bad. It was in the Toronto series, July 26th, where he had the exact situation that people were complaining about today. He had a really good first inning of work, and then things blew up in the second inning, and that was the inning in which he was charged with, I believe it was four earned runs. So that's one example. But again, this has been since the beginning of July, that that's really the first time that it didn't go well for him to come into that second inning after throwing a really brilliant first inning of work. And in that situation, he threw the fifth inning and they were trying to get him through the sixth. All right, so sometimes that's just going to be the need of the team to say, if you're going to be in this bullpen, it's 2022. We can't just say, all right, good job in the fifth. We're going to burn the rest of our bullpen and, and throw everybody one inning so that tomorrow nobody's available. That's just not realistic in 2022 for the way bullpens are used for the fact that starting pitchers don't go as deep into games. So, all right, July 26th, I'll give you, that was a bad one where they tried to get him out for another inning and it didn't work out. August 6th, this was last weekend against the Yankees. He threw an inning in a third, three strikeouts, one walk, no hits, no runs. The next day, August 7th, one and a third, all zeros with two strikeouts. So it's happened twice now, the 26th of July, and then today it happened for Jordan Hicks where he threw one really good inning, and then they try to bring him back out for the seventh, and he loses control of the strike zone, needs to be bailed out, and Cabrera fails to do so. But I'm looking at those two isolated examples and going, I think there's a full six weeks, seven weeks of Jordan Hicks where he's actually been pretty good. And even in those situations where they ask him to go more than an inning, he's actually done all right for the most part. He got blown up once, and then today it happened again. So I think for me, it's a little bit recency bias. I'm more inclined not to blame Ali Marmel for doing what a manager is inevitably going to have to do, guys, in 2022 like, you've got a bullpen where people say, well, why can't Ryan Helsley pitch every day? I get it. You wish Ryan Helsley could pitch more often. I will say the past week when we saw Helsley uh, in three out of four games, pitching on three out of four days in important situations, that happened last week where that, for the first time, they really ramped Jordan, not Jordan Hicks, but Ryan Helsley up in situations where they just needed their closer to come through and, and finish the job, and he did. But realistically, you know that's not going to be the case every week. So you've got to have other guys. It's been important that Giovanni Gallegos has stepped back into a trusted setup role, and he's actually, look at the numbers, he's been pretty solid for the most part in recent weeks after that little blip in early July that he definitely had, but I think he's kind of come out on the other side of that, and he's looked better recently for the most part. But there's still a limited number of guys, righties especially in that bullpen. You traded Oviedo, 
It was a good deal. You had to get Quintana, and I love the move for the Cardinals. I think Oviedo, I, I saw where he's in the minors, actually, for the Pirates, which I don't agree with. I don't know. Uh, I want to double-check that and make sure that's right, that, that he's been pitching. Yeah, he's uh, he's he's not made an appearance in the big leagues for Pittsburgh yet. He's still pitching in the minors. So I don't get that, but that's their problem, not the Cardinals anymore. But I'm looking at a, a bullpen with right-handed relievers where you just know that you you don't have the depth of quality options that you, you'd like to. And sometimes you have starters like Dakota Hudson who only go five innings or who go fewer than five innings. And that means more innings to fill. You can't just say Jordan Hicks can pitch the sixth and he's good to go. That's good enough. No, I mean, that's not his role. His role needs to be a guy that can bridge. Andre Pallante has been described as uh, when we moved him out of the rotation, we want to see him be the bridge to the late innings. Sometimes that bridge means the sixth and the seventh. Sometimes it means five outs. Sometimes it means four outs, whatever the case might be. But I don't think I can blame the manager for asking Jordan Hicks to go another inning and trying to get that out of him. I'm going to blame the guy that threw the balls, that that walked two in a row and set up a dangerous situation for his team. You're welcome to kick and scream about the manager. I don't think this is at all related to the manager because if you do that, like, let's isolate this. If you take that approach to every scenario, and it, it, oftentimes it's it's retroactive, it's it's in the aftermath where people see it go bad, and so they go, well, why would Ollie have done that? That's, that's terrible. We have to be careful about that kind of evaluation because it's not fair unless you're doing it in the moment. And I'm sure there are people out there who in the moment were saying, really, Jordan Hicks is back out for the next inning? And if that's you, great. You called your shot on this, and that's that's perfectly fine. I just don't think it's reasonable knowing that Helsley is going to be limited because they want to keep him healthy, knowing that Gallegos, they can't throw him every day. They can apparently throw Chris Stratton every day. That's the one guy they don't seem to care whether his arm falls off. Nick Whitgren was the same. I think it's a rule where you've got to have an ERA of five, and once you clear that threshold, you're allowed to pitch as often as, as you want. But that's kind of a good thing. If you've got a guy in your bullpen, and I know Chris Stratton has struggled, at times since his acquisition and and certainly the game where the Cardinals had it sewn up until he came in into the ninth inning and it almost got dangerous to where Helsley had to show up and pitch yesterday. Like that was not what you wanted. I shouldn't say yesterday because who knows what day you're listening to this podcast. Game two of the Rockies series, the one the Cardinals won, Stratton came in the ninth and sort of made things get a little bit messy. It's okay though to have those guys sometimes where you just say, yep, I, he seems to have a rubber arm, and we're not worried about him getting hurt, and so he's going to pitch a ton, even if he's not the most effective. There's value in him being able to take the ball in situations where it's not super high leverage. And that's what Stratton did for the most part in Game 2 of the Rocky series. But because I know your bullpen is not filled with guys like that, that can just pitch every day or are going to be able to give you multiple innings, you have to have the guys that can. And... Jordan Hicks in the bridge role, like Palante is supposed to be, needs to be the guy that can go multiple. Otherwise, he's miscast in that role. And maybe that's the way you feel. Maybe that's what you think the case is for Jordan Hicks this year. I'm looking at the numbers and saying, pitchers are going to have good days, are going to have bad days. Jordan Hicks hasn't had a great year, but in terms of what he's done in multiple inning relief appearances, I'm actually okay with it. I don't think it's this big old you know, smoking gun that Jordan Hicks can't go a second inning. 
Maybe he can't, but I'm going to put the onus on the pitcher to say you have to find a way to do it. To be as valuable as you're supposed to be to this team and the role that you're in, Jordan Hicks, you've got to figure out a way to find the strike zone in that second inning. I'm not going to blame the manager. I'm going to blame the guy that, and again, I'm not trying to rip him to shreds, but I'm going to put the onus on the guy that threw the pitches and for whatever reason couldn't throw them into the strike zone. Because what happened is that put Henesis Cabrera into a bad situation. I'm not really lifting the the responsibility from Henesis Cabrera. He's responsible for what happened because he gave up the two runs that were charged to Hicks, and then he gave up four of his own. Four runs, four hits, multiple home runs, two homers allowed by Cabrera, and that's just that's rough. That's the way you lose a game. If a guy comes in and can't get any outs, and he gives up four hits and four runs and two bombs, and he was supposed to be the fireman in the situation because he had runners on base when he came in, you're not going to win that game. Nine times out of ten, that's going to be a game that you lose. Jake Woodford came in, an inning in two-thirds, gave up just one hit, struck out two. Cardinals fans are like, what does this guy have to do to get a shot before everything goes to hell? I don't know the answer to that question. All year they have had Jake Woodford in the doghouse. There are people who will say, well, his his metrics and the analytics, screw all that. I don't care. Until he's not getting outs at the big league level, don't tell me what he can or can't do. Because so far, he's only gotten the outs. 2.82 ERA this season for Woodford. Oviedo was a guy that was put into that sort of leverage role, and he started to do well with it. And then they traded him, which, again, they had to do. Had to get your guy in Quintana. I like the move. Junior Fernandez was another guy. For a little while, he looked electric, and then he didn't anymore. So he wasn't he wasn't going to be the answer. You had you've cycled through these options and they haven't all stuck for for various reasons. I don't see any reason not to put Woodford in as one of those guys to at least try it. But they just haven't been willing to do that yet. He's he's mop up or he's in Memphis is the way it's gone for Woodford. But the numbers are good and maybe the peripherals will catch up on him and they're saying, "Yeah, it's he's been lucky. He's had good batted ball data that's just he's missing the bad luck right now and it's going to even out on him and then his numbers won't look as good okay that's fine but for now I'd like to see a little bit more Jake Woodford just give him an opportunity give him a chance not saying it's going to work out for sure I do think you you still could make the argument that the Cardinals have some work to do in terms of their bullpen to shore it up uh, for next year obviously the trade deadline is passed so there's nothing they can do for this year Uh, but I would say going back into February or March because of the lockout the strategy the Cardinals used at spring training and heading into the season with their bullpen was one that I liked. I liked the strategy. They went for quantity over quality, which doesn't mean go get a bunch of bad pitchers, but it also kind of does. It just means get guys who you're not going to have to pay a three-year, $20 million contract to, assuming he's going to be a big, important part of your bullpen, and then he ends up being terrible, and you're on the hook for that money. If a guy's going to be terrible, and relievers, believe me, are very capable of just sucking, They can come in, and you think they're going to be great, and maybe they will be for a month, and then they're awful. T.J. McFarlane, great example. He was great last year when they needed him. They gave him a little bit of money this year. Brutal. So don't do it. You don't have to give him money. The problem is they didn't identify the right targets with that quantity over quality situation because none of the guys from that group, Drew Verhagen, Aaron Brooks, I could go on. There was a bunch of guys, and it just all it hasn't panned out this year. So it's identifying the right names as well. That's always going to be the case whether you're spending $20 million or you're spending half a million. Identifying the right targets, the big name free agent acquisitions or the diamonds in the rough, it doesn't make a difference. The Cardinals didn't do that 
at a high enough level this year uh, to where their bullpen has had the kind of the kind of consistency that you want to see. And hopefully they'll find the, the ways to mix and match and make that fit a little better for the remainder of the season. But what we saw tonight was Jordan Hicks struggling with the strike zone, Dakota Hudson struggled with the strike zone, and then Cabrera, he threw strikes, but they were they were BP strikes, and he gives up four runs without giving up, uh, or, or I should say without recording an out. So the Cardinals have some answers uh, that they're still seeking, I think, in that bullpen situation. But hopefully it would be nice if over the course of the next week or two, this series is proven as the anomaly where you were at Coors Field and that's why it didn't look very good, right? The walks, though, can happen anywhere, and I just wish they they would figure out a way to not allow that. Six walks today by Cardinals pitching, four by Hudson, two by Hicks, is not a way to uh, not a way to live, not a way to have much success. Yet Hudson, because he does get double plays and he's efficient uh, when he is in the strike zone because guys are going to put the ball in play, it's going to be hard or it's going to be weak, and the outcome of that at bat is going to take place a little quicker when you're feeding strikes. He only had 75 pitches through five innings today. But when you walk those guys and you have that many stressful innings, it made sense to take him out at that point. So I don't know. That's kind of where I'm looking at the uh, pitching situation. I don't think Hudson's going anywhere. I had sort of wanted Palante to come in, as we know, after the last start that went bad for Hudson when Palante had to come in and piggyback. Today, didn't have Palante available, obviously, because he pitched yesterday. But Woodford, when he got a chance, was able to to lock down five outs without giving up anything of substance. It was just Jordan Hicks and Cabrera. It was not their day, and hopefully we can chalk it up to Denver and we'll see. But something to keep an eye on as uh, the rest of the season unfolds because the Cardinals, I mean, they're locked into this thing right now in terms of the NL Central standings. The Brewers were off on Thursday after a quick two-game sweep of the Rays. They beat Tampa 2-0 in the, the last couple of days. So the Cardinals losing the series to Colorado puts St. Louis just a half game ahead of the Brewers heading into the big weekend series at Bush. Cardinals clinging to that lead, but it won't stay that way if the bullpen doesn't shape up compared to what we saw throughout this series. Let's get into a little bit of the positives, though, and that was the offense from Thursday's game. The Cardinals' bats did some work, 12 hits, and they found a way to score six runs, but the majority of them were after the game was already out of hand. That six-run seventh for Colorado made it 8-2. to two. And so you figure the Cardinals are probably out of it there. To their credit, they didn't immediately fold the tent and go home. In fact, the Cardinals went back-to-back there in the eighth inning with Goldschmidt and Arenado getting the job done. It was Arenado's lone hit of the game. Goldschmidt had a big one, three for five with two runs scored and three RBIs. He's back to a better than... 100-point advantage in OPS over Arenado. 10.30 for Goldie, 9.33 for Nolan. The batting averages are 3.32 compared to 3.03. So both guys in an era where batting average doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot, they're both finding their way above 300 at this point. And, of course, the damaging swing that Arenado does. Arenado for the series ends up with two home runs against his former team in that ballpark where he spent so much time, obviously, in his career. Good to see that. Good to see Goldsmith kind of pick it back up a little bit. He's an interesting player because he's been fantastic all year. And so it's almost like when he's not doing damage, you're thinking, what's going on? He had like a streak of six games in a row where he's drawn a walk. But because he wasn't doing a ton in the power department recently, you're like scratching your head. Well, what's going on with Goldsmith? Well, he shows you he's still seeing the ball pretty well and breaks out again on Thursday with the three for five, getting the three runs driven in 
and uh, hitting that home run. His 27th of the year off of Alex Colomay, the Cardinal that wasn't. I remember that was a rumored Cardinal relief target at one point or another. Arenado up to 24 in the home run leaderboard as well. So right now, it's still Goldsmith's MVP to lose, in my opinion. But Nolan can find his way back into this. But he's going to need to... He's going to need to do more than one for five with a home run. That's what he had today. Goldsmith, three for five with a home run. It makes it difficult. But Goldie, I'm just looking at his spot atop that leaderboard. And to me, he is the MVP still at this point. You can look at every category. And even in in home runs and RBIs, he's finding his way creeping up on Pete Alonso. 29 to 27 RBIs, the leaderboard. Alonso does lead the NL with 96. Goldsmith has 87. I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that Paul Goldsmith could, if he gets on a little bit more of a tear in the power department, end up with a triple crown bid in terms of home runs, RBIs, and batting average. 332 is the average for Goldsmith, only 282 for Alonzo. And uh, Freddie Freeman kind of nipping at the heels there with a 325 average. But right now, Goldsmith leading all major league qualifying hitters. Well, actually, correction Luis Arise has a higher batting average by one point, 333 to 332. But Goldsmith leading the National League qualifying hitters an average on base and slugging as well, with Goldsmith atop the entire Major League leaderboard and on-base percentage. 413. He's getting on base 41.5% of the time. Only Jordan Alvarez and Aaron Judge have higher OPSs on the season than Goldie, but they're both in the AL, so they're not competing for the same award as Goldsmith. We'll see if Arenado can try and catch him, but it was good to see what both of those guys were able to do today. You just wish it happens a little bit sooner in the game, given the Cardinals had uh, already found themselves pretty heavily behind. And you also wish that it maybe could have happened for Nolan once more there in the ninth inning because he did represent the go-ahead run at one point with the, uh, the game on the line there in the ninth, but was not able to come through for the Cardinals, and they lose this one 8-6. to six. I do want to touch on one more aspect of the offense. Well, I guess two, technically. Nolan Gorman, just want to continue to give him his props. He was back in the lineup and in the number two spot in the lineup today. Two for four, two runs scored, had the home run, his 13th of the year, and also reached base via walk. So on base three times, the OPS for Gorman is up to 780. That's what we're talking about. That is entering into the territory of certainly above average in what we're seeing offensively across the game in 2022. But, man, the, the closer he pushes to 800, the more you realize, like, this guy could be a dude and I know he strikes out a fair bit, but who doesn't at this point in the modern way that we see Major League Baseball played? He's getting that batting average up a little bit, 242. The fact that the OPS is at 780 tells me he's got a decent little combination of hitting for power, which is supposed to be his game. But even in terms of the on-base percentage, that's going up to 316, which again is right around that Tommy Edmond, Dylan Carlson line where we've talked about those guys dipping below those numbers at times recently. The 464 slug, though, is something that separates Gorman from from those other players. Carlson wasn't in the lineup today. I like him getting the day off. Edmund not in the lineup today. You could call that maybe more than a day off. Maybe that's just Tommy Edmund becomes a little more part-time with Nolan Gorman's bat needing to stay in the lineup when it's not a lefty on the mound for the other side. That's so important to get him these opportunities when he's going well, I want to see what he can do to be to kind of force the issue. Can he be a full-time player at some point? That's what the Cardinals should want to see from uh, the rookie who, honestly, I haven't checked a lot in the way of rookie of the year sort of races in the National League, but 780 OPS for Gorman, 13 homers. OPS for Brendan Donovan is 767, so a little lower than Gorman's. 
I guess checking in on the leaderboard, Michael Harris is probably the guy that could run away with this one. The rookie outfielder for the Braves, who also has some stolen base ability in his game. 12 steals and hasn't been caught this year for Harris. He's putting together a very well-rounded campaign. 810 is his OPS for Atlanta. Doesn't walk a ton, so the on-base can can suffer. But when he's hitting 289, he's still trumping right now Nolan Gorman in terms of the on-base percentage, and he's he's got him in OPS as well. Gorman's got more homers, Harris more RBIs, and, and obviously the stolen base aspect. Hey, Nolan Gorman hasn't been caught stealing yet this year either, but one for one for Gorman, 12 for 12 for Harris. And Christopher Morell of the Cubs has Gorman licked in OPS right now as well at 783. But a couple options for Rookie of the Year. I don't think it's crazy necessarily to suggest that Gorman could work his way even further into that conversation uh, and the way he's playing right now, I just think he's a guy. I know they're probably not going to often play him against lefties, but I do think you'd like to see uh, him get as, as much of an opportunity as possible just to see what he can do with it. Uh, I decided, too, to check the pitching side of the Rookie of the Year race, and honestly, Andre Palante should be considered in that situation, along with Spencer Strider of Atlanta. Palante's got him beaten ERA, 2.97 to 3.11. Strider, though, a little bit more impressive uh, the fact that he's got double the strikeouts that Palante does. 138 Ks in 89 innings compared to just 64 in 88 innings for Palante. I don't know where the Spencer Strider kid came from, but I've seen him in, in fantasy baseball circles, and I wish I had him on my team because he's been ridiculous in terms of strikeout rate. That's something the Cardinals just don't have. They don't have those young guys coming up that are are blazing trails with throwing a lot of strikeouts. Another guy that I want to mention offensively, I know I got a little sidetracked because I said the one guy, and then I talked for 10 minutes about Nolan Gorman, but Lars Newtbar. Let's get into that conversation before I end the show by talking a little Jack Flaherty because he did pitch for Memphis on Thursday night, and I want to give you an update on how that went for him as he begins a rehab assignment down there in the minors. Lars Newtbar, we talked about it last night on the show. I said, put him in the leadoff spot. I didn't want to move guys like DeYoung up too far into the order. I... My my thought on guys like DeYoung is he's had enough mental gymnastics to go through already, and the fact that he's going better right now tells me, ah, don't mess with it. Let's leave him in the lower portion of the order. But a guy that I'm really curious to see whether he could turn into a long-term solution at the leadoff spot or at least toward the top end of the lineup is Lars Newtbar. He's just been on an absolute tear recently for the Cardinals. I want to do this again because I've looked at what his numbers are cumulatively since the beginning of July. And obviously, this is baseball reference, so we're going to be one day behind as as usual. But the 1,018 OPS after his two triples in Game 2 of this Rockies series, I mean, an OPS over 1,000 over the course of the last month plus, about five or six weeks by this point. And Goldsmith for the season has an OPS of 1033. So he's been Paul Goldschmidtian, for lack of a better phrase, since the beginning of July. And Newtbar, they decide, I guess Ali Marmel is a listener of the podcast. I know some people had fun on that, uh, with that on Twitter this afternoon when the lineup was released and everybody said, oh yeah, Brendan talked about this yesterday. Yeah, I wanted to see Newtbar in the leadoff spot and I think today we saw why. He immediately leads off the game with a double and then he finds his way on base two more times via the walk Later on in the game, his OPS up to 763 for the season. He's not a huge batting average guy, but part of the reason for that is because his batting average was well below 200 for the longest time this season. 
so it's hard to immediately raise that up, but he's been hitting 333 since July 1st. And that's a stat that I know carried over to today because he went one for three. That's exactly a 333 batting average. So for the season, his average has gone up to 239 now, whereas starting the day on July 1st, his batting average for the whole season was 145. So he's he's gone up significantly, nearly 100 points over the past about six weeks. Really impressive stuff by Newplar. I hope they just keep him in the leadoff spot as long as he's going because we talked about it. He can be such an energetic force. He's such an exciting player. He's got good vibes to him. He's a guy that your teammates want to root for Lars Newplar. Not only do the fans root for Lars Newplar, but Lars Newplar's teammates get hyped up when Lars Newtbar is in on the in on the action and in on the fun. So I'm all about it, and not a bad debut in the leadoff spot to get on base three different times for Newt. I hope they keep him right there, and I hope he's able to continue producing because that might be an answer for the outfield. Like Tyler O'Neill, he goes over again today. Something's maybe got to give with that. Four strikeouts, he's not looks good. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know that it's a DeYoung-like uh, trip to Memphis. I don't know. I don't have the answer. The Cardinals just need him to be more productive. He started in center field today. I don't know if that was part of the issue, uh, maybe translating a little bit of an uncomfortable nature to the batter's box based on what was going on in the field. I don't know. He's played a little bit of center field before, so I wouldn't think that would be the case. But he just has not looked good at the plate. His OPS is 630 for the year. He's hitting 222. He just has not had the power, has not had the consistency, and so he moves down to the seventh spot in the lineup I think you do. I think you got to keep him lower in the lineup when he plays. I don't think he needs to play every day. You can trade it off between O'Neill and, and Carlson, honestly, right now to try and find something. But Newt Bar needs to play daily. Uh, Corey Dickerson got into the action, and he was three for four with an RBI today. So you might want to give him some run. He's actually been a lot better than maybe people would give him credit for over the past six weeks or so. And I don't have any problem with him continuing to find his way into the lineup if he's hitting well. Otherwise, you, there are people who would say, call up Alec Burleson, send O'Neill down, let him work on some things. I don't think it's going to happen, but it wouldn't be like at this point, it's it's mid-August. There's no crazy answer. There's nothing too insane to where it can at least be considered, in my opinion, uh, you know, barring the obviously insane stuff. Like to say, send down a struggling player and bring up a guy who hit his 20th home run of the season for Memphis tonight. And by the way, Moises Gomez hit his 30th home run of the season in the minor leagues, but most of those were at Springfield. Nevertheless, Alec Burleson has been a consistent rock there in the uh, Memphis Redbirds lineup. I think at some point you want to bring him up, and if you've got two outfielders struggling at the same time, maybe this is the way to do it, but I do think they'd have to send down O'Neill to make that work. He does have an option remaining. He is still under the service time limit for being able to unilaterally option a player to the minor leagues. Cardinals could do it. I don't know if it's exactly the answer, but it, it did seem to work some wonders for DeYoung. I know they've tried it with O'Neill in the past, if I recall. They've had him down in the minors at times before. We'll see. I just think it's something that should be considered because right now it's not really time to mess around. You really do need your offense to be firing on all cylinders, especially coming into this weekend against the Brewers. So we'll see what the Cardinals are able to come up with from that perspective and hopefully it results in more opportunities to win games this weekend. You're seeing the middle of the lineup do its thing with guys like Goldschmidt and Arenado making it happen. Uh, need to get the rest of the guys moving as well to uh, to discontinue that onslaught. That's what the Cardinals are going to need against Milwaukee. 
They're a good team who's been down on their luck a little bit, but starting to turn things around by beating the Rays twice in a row. That They don't mess around. So good pitching matchup between two very similar lefties on Friday. Jordan Montgomery, 4-3 and three with a 3.53 ERA this season. Eric Lauer, 8-3 with a 3.59 ERA. Two lefties going at it on Friday night at Bush Stadium. Be another opportunity for Jordan Montgomery. Hey, this time he doesn't have to pitch against his former team, the Yankees. He'll actually face another team, and it'll be an NL team. So that'll be a little bit different for him. Cardinals could use him. Saturday, big-time pitching matchup between Adam Wainwright and Corbin Burns. At least Michaelis doesn't have to face Burns this time. It seems like Miles always gets the short end of the draw there by facing the other team's ace. Not in this case. That'll be Wayno getting that assignment on Saturday. And then Michaelis will take on Aaron Ashby, the lefty who's uh, not doing so well in the record column, 2-10, but a 4-3-2 ERA, and he's got over 100 strikeouts. He's a, a dynamic young pitcher that if on the right night he's able to carve up the Cardinals lineup, it wouldn't be a surprise to me. And I guess that would be on the right day because it's a 115 first pitch on Sunday. So that's the way the preview of the upcoming series breaks down. We'll be here, of course, throughout the weekend to break it down on b Shafe Daily. Before we bid farewell, though, I do want to mention the Jack Flaherty outing. I did tease it, and so let's talk about it real quick. Jack Flaherty threw 35 pitches in a rehab assignment on Thursday night for the Memphis Redbirds. One-plus innings is all he was able to get through, so just three outs. Threw 21 strikes on 35 pitches, allowed four hits, three runs, two of them were earned, a couple of strikeouts and no walks, which is a nice element of it because he wasn't giving away those free bases that we had harped upon. But he does give up a home run in the game. I saw that stat line and said, oh boy, that doesn't look great. And actually that report that I saw on Twitter I don't think was entirely accurate though. Now that I'm looking at it a little bit more closely on the team website, Flaherty charged with four total runs, three of them were earned. So he does give up an additional run that I I didn't notice wasn't listed because it was unearned. So four and three, not three and two for Jack. And he just gets through three outs worth of pitching in the game. Takes the loss for Memphis. Juan Yepes down there. He's working his way back on a rehab, looking pretty good. Uh, As I mentioned, you got the homer from Gomez. You got a home run from, it, it was game two that Alec Burleson hit. His home run, they had a doubleheader for Memphis today. I think Flaherty pitched the first one, I do believe, of that one. But my impressions, uh, having not seen it, I I got word from someone who said, oh, he actually looked okay. The the score doesn't really indicate that it was actually a productive first outing for Flaherty. Uh, Buddy Richard McGill on Twitter, going to give him a shout out because he took some pictures from the game and said he looked okay. First guy gets on by Kedger's interference on Herrera and then did again in the next at-bat. The home run one was the killer. Got some ground balls, some hard hit, broken bat single, sat 92 to 93. And Richard said, worry more about how he feels tomorrow. Seemed to struggle with his feel for pitches. And that's the part that alarms me just a little bit. Again, it's hard to make a lot of commentary on something I didn't personally see. But I will say, feel for pitches was something that Flaherty did not have when he was in St. Louis a few weeks ago trying to make his way back from that stint on the injured list. And that's when things eventually spiraled for him. Uh, but I think it's a good thing that even without a feel for his pitches, he was able to to avoid walking guys because that was a problem in those long innings, which again, this was, I mean, 35 pitches and you only get three outs. It sounds like more of the same for Flaherty, but I'm not going to freak out about it just yet. I just don't think anybody should expect him to be in St. Louis anytime soon. 
Like, there's no reason to rush him at this point because you tried that once and it didn't work. So if I'm the Cardinals, I, I put my foot down and say, listen, don't care whether you want to be on the rehab. That's where you're going to be because we, we have not seen enough from you to know that you are able yet to throw quality innings for St. Louis. Jack Flaherty is not the kind of guy that likes to hear those kinds of things, but I think the Cardinals just have to be, and maybe Flaherty is going to be more amenable to it this time as well and say, yeah, I know I need to make sure I'm good and ready before I end up at the big league level. Uh, you don't want to have another situation where you have a setback. So, And it's not to say that he had a setback the first time because of rushing to the big leagues, but when you have a chance to control every variable for a little bit longer, just to be double sure, I think that's the way the Cardinals probably ought to go with this. And hopefully Flaherty's able to uh, get some of the kinks out of his game and find a way to really be effective because come September, and again, right now it's only August 12th, now that I'm talking after midnight, he could make a start in five days, make another start five days later, another start five days later, and return early September. That's still a while from now. There's still time on the calendar for that to happen, for him to be important to this team in 2022. That would be the best-case scenario, and maybe he would slide into that Hudson spot in the rotation, and you'd really have something if vintage Flaherty showed up in September for the Cardinals. That's my take on the situation, though, and that's going to do it for this edition of the show. appreciate you guys, as always, for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on Be Safe Daily. Peace!